Hey everyone, Dan here introducing another quick hitter episode on Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron. We both have been particularly keen on checking this one out all year since for the longest time it was understood that there would be no new Miyazaki films ever, so to be able to see a new Ghibli film on the big screen like this was quite a treat. As usual with our quick hitters, we're going to go in without really any outline plotted or any pre-sentiments that we want to hit, simply just our first impressions, our first feelings, and kind of discover what makes this film tick together. If you like what we do, feel free to give this pod a like, follow, subscribe, review, whatever, on whichever app you do your listening on. You can find Jared on threads at Jared Concessions, and you can find me on X at Dan Concedes. Also, next week, we're going to have a little treat for you guys with another quick hitter episode on the film Maestro, where you might recognize someone from an earlier episode on the big screen if you check that one out. And without further ado, let's hop right on to Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron. Squawk! Welcome to Concessions. I'm Dan. And I'm Jared. And this is our final podcast. We're retiring after this one. Definitely retiring after this one. Done. No more. Won't see us again after what this is like the fourth time that we're doing our last episode i swear to god this is the very last one <laughs> and we'll have another one coming up on monday with the with the same energy as someone hung over saying that was my last beer never drinking again yeah yeah may, may we all have such a productive retirement <laughs> that hayao miyasaki has had I mean, I always joke that uh, since I ended baseball, I'm a retiree right now. I'm enjoying, well, I'm barely enjoying my retirement. I'm working a lot for a retired person. Yeah, but like that that would be like you know, retiring from baseball and then 10 years later winning the Cy Young Award. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking the other way around of Hayao Miyazaki retiring and then becoming an accountant. <laughs> he would make <laughs> a terrible accountant. <laughs> uh but yeah, we are here to uh, just kind of drop our initial thoughts on uh, Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron. It came out as of day of recording last weekend. It's the 13th right now, so it's the previous Saturday or previous Thursday. I think I could have seen it here in San Diego. Oh, so actually, yeah, it's a little under a week old. Uh, it is, you know, directed by Hayao Miyazaki. It is written by Hayao Miyazaki, produced by Studio Ghibli. I'm going to be saying Ghibli this time the whole time. And yeah, just as with most of Miyazaki's uh, output, it's pretty much his his baby, his brainchild. It's been gestating for a long time. Originally, it was called How Do You Live, which also comes up in this story directly. Uh, yeah, Jared, if you don't mind, uh, lead us off with some initial thoughts. Uh, oh, wait, I completely forgot the part, at least for you know English speaking people, the dubbed cast. I personally, we both did. We watched uh, it dubbed. And my lord, this cast. The only person who I didn't know leading off is the eponymous boy by Luca Padavan, which, you know, of course you need someone younger. So he doesn't have quite an illustrious career, seeing as he's not old. Uh, but you got Robert Pattinson, you got Karen Fukuhara, you got Christian Bale, you got Gemma Chan, you got Dave Bautista, you got Willem Dafoe, Florence Pugh, Mark Hamill, and Dan Stevens rounding out a very star-studded cast which like i know that ghibli's films especially later ones like usually get this kind of caliber but my god yeah this one is particularly memorable i think 
wisely, they put out some social media marketing, just highlighting just the absolute insanity that is Robert Pattinson's performance in yeah, this. Yeah. Absolutely just committing and then some. And we'll talk a little bit more about some contrast to that a little bit later. I think you got to point out that uh, this is another collaboration between Miyazaki and longtime Muse or composer, uh, mm. composer, partner, uh, Joe, uh, is it his, Hisaishi? Hisaishi? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. For what it's worth, you know, my opinion being what it's worth, I think this is the finest score of any Ghibli film, except maybe the one that we, we just also watched uh, Spirited Away. But I actually think I like this one a little bit more. It's just absolutely marvelous the entire time. Uh, just got nominated for the Golden Globe when uh, that's that's the first major American award that um, that Hisaishi has gotten a nomination for. Didn't get wow. any nominations for Spirited Away uh, or The Wind Rises. I think he did The Wind Rises. But yeah, got the Golden Globe nom just this week. I suspect that in a couple months we'll be learning that he got the Academy Award nom as well. Mm-hmm. And the, the score is remarkable. It's one of the yeah. most remarkable things about this movie. Yeah, I mean, with uh, yeah, I'm just looking at his uh, his output, and yeah, the top t- or twelve of them are Ghibli movies, with eleven of them directly being Miyazaki films. So yeah, if if anyone, pretty much he is the uh, source material for if you're ever listening to like lo-fi Ghibli and chill, like you're just oh, yeah. listening to Hisaishi uh, <laughs> tracks. Yeah, and I his. Anyone who's a fan of video game music can see shades of his work from composers like Koji Kondo did all the early, very, very earwormy Nintendo themes, like all the early Mario Brothers music, all the early Zelda music, um, all the way through like, oh, Nobu Yumatsu, who did all the major Final Fantasy games through like the late 80s, through the 90s and early 2000s very similar vibes that go all the way back to um, Hisaishi's compositions for mm. Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind and then Castle in the Sky and, and My Neighbor Totoro. You can definitely see a lot of those shades in Japanese video game music. Yeah. Uh, if, yeah. if anyone has played, well, I know anyone has played, but anyone listening to this has played the two most recent Zelda games, Tears of the Kingdom um, and Breath of the Wild. They are, absolutely indebted uh both aesthetically like visually and musically to studio ghibli films oh absolutely and um yeah uh, it's really cool to see both miyazaki and haisishi getting like such like so many like just such heaps of praise for this you know late late career gem the boy in the heron mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah well uh aside from the music uh Jared, did you did you like the story? Did you like the movie? Yeah, you know, I think this movie. Uh, if you listen to the Spirited Away episode, I'm not the biggest Miyazaki fan. Like, I, I I've never met a Miyazaki movie I didn't at least enjoy, but I definitely don't get quite as hyperbolic with the praise as a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. This movie falls right up there with my favorite Studio Ghibli movies. Oh, wow. I think I like this just as much as Spirited Away, just as much as uh, Howl's Moving Castle, just as much as Princess Mononoke. Can you express what puts this at the top compared to, like, 
you know, the ones you didn't mention, like Whisper the Heart or Ponyo or movies that like you probably appreciate and you're like, eh, I mean, it's fine. There's a certain simple sincerity that this movie has that isn't quite as engulfed around like really dense themes, like really dense, um, big, ambitious animation. Like, of, of course, this movie is beautiful and like every single frame is a watercolor painting with so much detail and love but there's something a little bit stripped down about this movie where it doesn't seem quite as lofty it feels a little bit more personal a little bit more just like human to human and not human versus mythology or Mm. or human versus the environment or anything like that it just feels very much Mm. like Mm -hmm. here's a little bit of a, a, a watercolor fantastical memoir in a way that I really loved. And, you know, there's obviously shades of that in, in a lot of his movies, but I feel like this one is just a little bit more stripped down and sincere than I'm used to seeing from Miyazaki. And um, usually where he loses me is in plot. Mm. Just namely that just uh, the plot of most of his movies just devolve into like chaos. A lot of the times this movie did that a little bit. Like by the time we got into like, here's like some story thrust and like, here's the King of the parakeets trying to usurp the, you know, the old man on the mountain. I forget the name of Mark Hamill's character, but he's like their great grandfather. Wise old uncle. Or their, great, uncle. Their, their great grand uncle. I, I didn't really follow it or care. All I cared about was like, Oh my God. I, I love the fact that we're just getting to see Mahito just hang out with his mom at his mm-hmm. age Mm-hmm. And how beautiful that is. And the movie doesn't even like make a big deal out of it. The movie doesn't even make a big deal out of like big old shocking reveal that that Lady Himi is actually his mom at his age. Right. Um, right. That he misses. We just get to see them just be be sweet. You know, I love that so much. And uh, just the whole like unwinding of also not treating it like a big old shocking twist that. Uh, that Natsuko is his aunt. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't even like, I don't think they even say it out loud at the beginning of the movie. Like he's not like, like when he's rejecting her as his mother, it's it's not playing it like, oh, that's weird. That's my mom's sister. It's it's more just playing it like, I don't want a different mom. I want my yeah, mom. Yeah, it could have been anyone really. Yeah, yeah. But just the slow unraveling of those relationships and how everyone feels and just how, um, just how sweet it is at the end that he's just like fighting for for Natsuko to be his mom, right? Mm-hmm. I just loved it. Like it's it, it hit me so squarely in the chest and I didn't even care that the plot was a lot of nonsense most of the time. Oh, see, that's funny cuz like I love the nonsense. It's my fa- like if you tracked probably my favorite are the ones I uh probably could talk about most at length when it comes to the Miyazaki uh films. It's the ones where he kicks the doors out and he's like, what the fuck can we do with this medium and how like, cause it's animation. You can literally put whatever you want to fill a frame and me as, but still like ground it in something that makes some kind of narrative sense that people will connect with. And like Miyazaki is so perfect at marrying the two where like this film is at least in the back half when things start really get, get going, like you said, it's fucking bonkers. Like, I'd say more so than even Spirited Away, where, um, I mean, what, we get, like, these really bizarre, abstract, like, 
nothing hallways and like you're in like the universe and there's stars falling down or even yeah. those opening the opening fire is like terrifying the way Whoa, that he yeah. animates fire and like you yeah. see the the people that they're like these like melted demon shadow forms of like lesser people um and it's yeah his and kind of what you're saying where it's like these expressionistic paintings like even when things are still i think he's or uh, when they're in the I don't know, like the, the country house, I guess we want to call it the country manor that he moves mm -hmm. to. Like the backgrounds are borderline Monet paintings. Like they're super expressionistic. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd say more so than his previous output, like compared to Spirited Away, where Spirited Away, you even talked about, it's like, whoa, look at the detail, like the grain of wood and everything. Right, so right, right, right. lovingly crafted. Where now this is like so much more painted with like feeling and expression and subjectivity. Yeah. Uh, and still like, but still, at the same time, it you do manage to follow along and you're grounded with it. And, like, it still has that classic uh, Ghibli feel, uh, which I think is just remarkable that he could that he can do both. I mean, I, I, I couldn't expect it from anyone else but him. But he still continues to uh, inspire in that way. Yeah. Um, but and like what you're saying, it's like in the end, it's a stripped back story. It's it's very simple. It's, um, you know, a an adolescent or a young adolescent boy is dealing with the death of his mother and a changing family and uh, having to accept a new mother in, in a family and, and uh, things happen to his life that are outside of his control. Very simple story. Seen it a bazillion times in a bazillion different ways. Yeah. Uh, but be, yeah, think, this, this is another Pan's Labyrinth or Coco. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Like, we, we've been here before right. uh, which in that that goes to say like you know even going all the way back like joseph campbell's uh, hero with a thousand faces and stuff like that like just because the story has been repeated or is quote-unquote formulaic in that sense doesn't mean you can't do fascinating things with it and right play with this like very firm base that we can understand to then kick the fucking doors out and do all sorts of wild shit yeah yeah exactly uh and yeah this movie has the bones of like several <laughs> other miyasaki films but yeah, something about this movie just made me made me love it even more, right? I uh, this this is a complete coincidence, like well, phonetic thing that you know the Japanese language and the Spanish language have absolutely nothing to do with each other, <laughs> but just phonetically, the main character name is Mojito, which is like yeah. just <laughs> slightly different than you know what what uh, Mexican parents call their their little children, you know, Mijitos. Oh, I was uh, thinking of uh, an ice cold mojito. Very, very, very similar as well. But like, I grew up having all of my aunts and uncles call me mojito. Oh, like just my my little son, right? And uh, it's just co utter coincidence that the phonetics worked that way with this main character. But the whole time, every time someone said his name, I'm like, oh, that's what people called me all the time when I was a little boy. <laughs> and something about that probably helped uh, really get me en ensconced within its emotional journey. That is that is really nice. I didn't I, I didn't know that. Um, what was it? Oh, and yeah, that's what you're saying about how this isn't like, even though it's there, it's not as big as it is in other films. Where it's like it's not about. It is about Japan in World War II, but it's not really about that. It is about uh, the environment around them, but it's not really about that. It is about um, like our further industrialized minds compared to being alienated from nature. But that's there too. Like these are all themes yeah. that pop up over and over in Miyazaki. Oh yeah. But, but I think what I separates this one so much more than other ones I've seen is kind of what you mentioned too. It's like, this is so interior. This is a much more exploration of self and like in, in a very, that's up front and center where it's how it's there in all other films. But like, this is, uh, 
this is far and away spending the most time there, spending the most like you're in like physical manifestations of his subjectivity at points um, yeah. and like really delving into uh, more psychological depths than I think other Ghibli Ghibli films don't do as much like they all do it. But this this one like that's the front and center theme is uh, the exploration of self. Yeah. And I think a lot of his movies have that. Uh, you know, it's a hackneyed term, but Miyazaki does it as, as well as anyone else ever has. Just it, it has that coming of age. Like it has that maturing of, hey, here's like a buildings ramen. Would that be a buildings ramen? The, yeah, the, exactly. If you want to use that word. Um, <laughs> and it happens in Spirited Away, certainly, where main character basically grows up in front of us. Uh, it happens in this in a way less grandiose fashion where he's it's not a little boy becoming like a young adult it's more of just a little boy learning to like navigate the world better as a little boy and Mm -hmm. and empathize with other people around him and appreciate the things around him more but he's still a little boy at the end Mm -hmm. and uh man i just i just really loved that and i think all the things that you're saying are true about like you know industrialization and you know post-world war ii japan and all that stuff but again, like all the message is just along for the ride. I'll just double down on what I said about Spirited Away is that Miyazaki didn't seem to be obsessing over the message. He just seemed to be obsessing over uh, the story and the visuals and uh, kind of the expression and all of that really strong messaging is, is just along for the ride because of course it is because he's such a consummate artist. Well, this is, you've now activated a bit of a trap card here where I get to wax about something personal to me that I love very much. Um, So Miyazaki has this uh, approach uh, similar to Spirited Away where he kind of starts with a premise and he just explores. He doesn't necessarily knows where it's going. He just knows he, like like what you said in the Spirited Away episode, it's like, let's just put a precocious modern 10-year-old girl in a whole smorgasbord of traditional Japanese uh, symbology and just see what happens. And another uh, Japanese artist who does that, that he kind of, he's definitely a, I'm going to start with something, see where it goes. I don't even know where it's going to end or if it even has an ending, but I'm just going to play it out is Haruki Murakami. And he is my very, very favorite author. I'm just finishing up the last book that, or like the last thing that he has written that I have not read. So like I'm all the way in on him. And for the, this is the first time watching a Miyazaki movie where like unprompted all of a sudden I thought, Oh shit. Like these are Murakami themes too. Like I'm not suggesting that like Miyazaki was sitting there. I was like, I'm going to, you know, borrow from Murakami and like take some of his themes. But with like the, the level of interiority and the level of uh, like, like psychological exploration and the kind of disinterest in tidy answers in things like all wrapping up in some kind of logical sense, even though it does make one, it makes its own rational sense uh, that, that maybe can't be expressed explicitly. Um, it, it very much feels like a Murakami story. Like even down to the Heron reminded me directly of a character that shows up in two different Murakami stories, which like he's usually not a shared universe kind of guy. So it's kind of weird that this one guy popped up in two stories and it's the character of uh, Ushikawa. If anyone knows him where he, he just seems like the Heron, it was just written to be Ushikawa, just this like grating, like gnarly little fucker 
that like uh, deep, deep, deep down underneath, you know, there's something there and some kind of humanity left in there, but he's just so like off putting to, to deal with on the outside. Um, and also like similar to Murakami, which people will, I think it's an, it's kind of a funny PG move of Murakami of, of Murakamiization. I don't know of this film that I'm deciding to put that lens on him. It's like, correct me if I'm wrong, but this film's a little edible. Like there's, there's not, Sure. Not none of that going on. No, no. I mean, it has it has shades of Hamlet in it, mm. like right like right away, just like a lot of a lot of stories do. Um, and you know, Shakespeare is one of those Western figures that has permeated Eastern culture as well. Mm. And yeah, I think it has the similar shades. Like even just the premise itself is Oedipal, right? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, uh, obviously, Pan's Labyrinth is that same way. Where literally, like you have a character named Ophelia. It's got the same basic premise as Hamlet as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I would say that this movie probably doesn't explore those themes quite as much as other uh, Hamlet adjacent stories have done. Uh, or, you know, and obviously, like, even Hamlet was just taking straight from Oedipus Rex. It's yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. also, it's just one of those traditions that, like, you know, it goes back so far in Western storytelling that it's permeated Eastern storytelling as well. And, yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear more about, like, what you, what you would point out as, like, the most Oedipal turns of events in this movie. Yeah, and, and I would almost, just from the more like Murakami himself, like he writes a lot of Oedipal stories and people will say, Oh, that's a big Western influence on him. And he is a very Western inspired Eastern writer, but there are Oedipal stories that come out of like things that could be described as Oedipal that comes out of uh, uh, more, you know, Japanese, like just purely Japanese, pure pulling from Japanese storytelling kind of uh, novels and stories. So like, I feel like the idea of uh, even more, uh, broad like the Oedipal complex like exists in any culture because it's culture full of human beings um but they just get expressed in different ways but yeah like the you know just the basic idea of like the Oedipal complex where it's um like the father is trying to replace the mother with someone else who's a relative and now you have the boy who has to go like who initially wants to rescue the mother so, so that he doesn't have to he doesn't have to have her replaced and now he's accepting of his new mother and like trying to position himself within that relationship. Like it, it all kind of smacks of it a little bit, but it's not, I think that's what people tend to get wrong with the Oedipal complex or Oedipus complex. It's not that like three-year-old boys want to fuck their mom. Like that's not what's going on there. It's this, uh, it's that like this is the main feminine relationship and the base one that you have when it comes to that style of love when you're three and the only per and you want to get more of it, all of it. You want a hundred percent of that. And the only person who's getting in the way of that is your father. So like, it's that natural rivalry that would be set up through a, you know, a heterosexual uh, pairing with a child that would, that could be just like, could be blown up and turn into the tragedy that is Oedipus, obviously. Um, but it need not be sexual in its explicitly sexual, you know, um, and you see those sort of drives and those sort of um, motivations going on in this film where he wants to, you know, he wants to rescue the mom. He wants to also he's iffy about this replacement mom and like what that's going to do with the affection of this figure now of his dead parent who no longer exists is now just an idea. 
um, I think it all, and then this like, you know, this long hero's journey to <laughs> essentially delve into his own psyche to deal with this uh, contradiction that exists within him. Yeah, yeah. Which is, it, uh, that's literally, I'm pretty much describing the, the first novel by Murakami I read, Kafka on the Shore. I'm pretty much describing that plot, except in that one, uh, spoilers for anyone who's going to read Kafka on the Shore. Um, he does fuck his ghost mom in that one. So that's not going to be in a Miyazaki movie. Not with that attitude. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, you know? All right. M- moving on to more of like the technical side. This is something that you and I uh, briefly discussed that you brought up uh, before we started recording. And it was probably my least favorite aspect of watching the English dub is, man, this thing is full of phoned in performances by famous people. <laughs> like with the exception of... Robert Pattinson, obviously, who always goes for broke every time he does anything right. these days. Um, and Mark Hamill. Mark, yeah, Mark, Mark, yeah, Mark Hamill, who, of course, is like, he's a voice artist primarily. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah, of course. And one, But one thing that I, I need to f- figure out is, does Florence Pugh in this movie, does she pull uh, a Mia Goth where she's playing the character at both ages? Because there isn't another person listed in the cast list for for old lady Kiriko. Yeah, I saw that too. I I think I, in that case probably. If that's the case, then yeah, Florence Pugh also does some pretty sweet work here. Yeah. But um, but if that's not the case, then yeah, it's another phone in performance, and it, it's like Christian Bale. It's like oh yeah, Christian Bale's in the in the recording booth, and um, I'm your did I'm your dear old dad, and <laughs> and it's like oh yeah, that's that's Christian Bale just. Being a being Christian Bale, yeah, like even like even like Willem Dafoe, yeah, doesn't really put much into his character, even though it's very very brief appearance by Willem Dafoe, right? Yeah, I, I, it got the most distracting for me when Dave Batista appeared as the Parakeet King, and he was not at all uh, doing any sort of character other than just here's Dave Batista talking. <laughs> sort of with yell, a slightly yell, grandiose voice. You have the slightly grandiose voice, a la Drax the Destroyer in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I would, I need to find out if if Florence Pugh is also playing the old lady version of of Kiriko, or if she's just the, the young lady Kiriko that we we see later yeah. in the movie. Anything else you would add to that, Dan? I know well, it kind of took words is- out of your mouth there. Yeah, no, it is interesting because the only I kind of deliberately did this where I did not look up the dubbed cast because I thought it would be distracting where instead of taking in the film, I would just be listening for like, oh, there's Florence Pugh. Oh, there's Mark Hamill. Oh, there's Christian Bale. Like, I think that would have taken away from the experience. And so for the most part, I couldn't. I mean, I knew Robert Pattinson was playing the Heron, but like, oh, my God, I would have had no idea if I didn't know that walking in. Um but the only actor that, like, when they started talking on screen, I clearly could just pull them out of the ether and it's like, oh, that that's that guy, like that recognizable person was Dave Batista as the the big king parakeet. And I was like, yeah, that's just like him reading lines. Like everyone else at least was like judging it up just enough that I couldn't immediately understand who that actor was. I could like take some guesses. But yeah, Batista's was like immediate. I heard that. I I had that immediate reaction with Christian Bale and Florence Pugh and Willem Dafoe again with the asterisk that if uh, if Florence Pugh was also playing the old lady Kiriko at the beginning, 
then yeah, I, I had no idea. He's doing a, a great job. But once she was playing a character her own age, it was definitely just Florence Pugh playing Florence Pugh. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that that does remind me going back to the uh, that you know this wasn't a movie. Even though there are things that could have been treated as big twists and big reveals, it just kind of matter of factly let them exist in the film. Um, which is that that was the same Florence Pugh character was like the the cool pirate lady. And when it eventually is like directly revealed that it is indeed the the older uh, granny, um, I actually did hear a couple of people in the theaters go like, "Oh, whoa!" I was like, "Guys, that wasn't like that was like pretty apparent from the get go." Like, Granny goes into the world, but then you don't see her in the underworld, and you see this new character in the underworld. Like, uh, there's only six Granny tokens, and the seventh one happens to be missing. Like, he's not. He's not trying to hide this, really. Um, and it's the same with, yeah, um, that his, you know, his younger mom character and the character of the aunt, like, they're not, you know, it's not explicitly called out, but it's never sh- it's never shown as, like, some kind of hidden information that eventually it hinges on this twist to really blow your mind. It's, like, just these very, like you said, it, it puts the relationships between everyone at the forefront. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I very much enjoy that about a movie. Um, and I know what I'm going to recommend based on just that specific thing that I loved about this, where a lesser movie would treat twists as twists, mm. right? Pull the rug out and like, oh, gotcha. It was actually this character all along. <laughs> this movie doesn't do that. It just unfolds the information based on the relationships and the char- the way the characters would actually have that information revealed to them Mm -hmm. and uh, it having this big dramatic shocking effect on them. Isn't at all what the movie wants to do or like what would be, you know, realistic even Mm -hmm. and definitely enjoy that. Oh, here's actually something that once again, very Murakami, it's going to be a running theme through this whole episode, I suppose um, was the subversion of what this film probably could have been very easily is this is a chosen one narrative right um where you know he's they keep talking about he's got the bloodline only people of like this noble lineage could possibly free of malice yeah 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 um and basically he he could have said yes and it probably could have worked out great for him and that could have been an ending uh but he specifically rejects like the the hero's journey of being the chosen one and and closing the loop that way and like that whole world gets fucking destroyed like that's like very much not in uh joseph campbell would shudder at such an ending um and instead it opts for what i think is this much more like what you said like sincere and, and true to life ending of this boy just learns more about how to orient himself in yeah. a world that he doesn't understand, which no one understands how this fucking world works. But like he, he just learns how to, how to live. How yeah. does he live? Yeah. How do you live? And he, uh, he, he learns that he wants to be in a world that's full of people that love him. Mm-hmm. Even if that is his new aunt mother. <laughs> but I do. Yeah. I do love that. Um, the toying with those tropes and then using them in a way or like, you know, breaking them in a way that creates much more of an important emotional heft. And, and like we had been saying, like this movie, uh, pretty much the moment he gets into the tower until he gets out of the tower, like 
the, the visuals are off the walls fucking bonkers. So you need yeah. something to anchor an audience of like, okay, I kind of know where this is going. I kind of understand, like, I can understand this alien world in this context of these things I know before. And to end that with completely, it was like, actually, fuck that. That's the, like, there are no chosen ones. There's like, there, it's not your responsibility to make sense of and then fix the entire world. All you can do is just like, love those around you and, and, and do what you can in your little space. Yep. 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 Which... Uh, side note. I love how this movie has um, a bunch of little creatures. Oh, you know, little guys. Swarm of little guys. This movie. <laughs> uh, I don't know if the swarm of little guys in this movie quite holds a candle to the swarm of little guys and spirited away, but gosh, I love seeing a bunch of little guys. Oh man. And then, and then also to take your little guys, this is something Disney would never do, and just murder the fuck out of them for a scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With And I think that another thing that we were talking about in the Spirited Away episode where they're, you could call the Parakeet King an actual, like, bad dude. But other than that, it's like the pelicans don't want to be there, and they need to stay alive. Like, when you hear, like, the, the, the wise old pelican, the Willem Dafoe, uh, Pelican, like, give his story. It's like they're thrust into circumstances that they did not choose, and they have to stay alive. And this thing that, at least when you first watch it, it's like, no, don't eat the little guys. I love the little guys. It's like, well, what do you want us to do? Like, yeah. we're these are the conditions that we're under, and this is the best we can do. Like, yeah. we're not evil, we're just finite creatures who need to exist. Yeah, same with the parakeets. Um, yeah, yeah, same. And this is nice seeing them all transform into their real world counterparts and where they can thrive at the end. There's so much bird shit in this movie too. Yeah. And birds, like people getting shit on by birds and it's not being played for comedy. (laughs) Oddly, like there's a lot of, a lot of serious moments where serious characters are being covered in a serious amount of bird shit. And it's not, (laughs) it's not a joke. It's just like, well, that's what happens. You know, you hang out with birds, you get shit on. The, The crowd that I was in, they laughed the first time the heron shit all over Mojito's window. Oh, all over though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, like later on, when like his aunt is covered in bullshit bird shit, and they're like reuniting and stuff, no laughs. Um, <laughs> yeah, now you mentioned it. Yeah, we had, I had the same experience when the um when the credits rolled at the end. There was a lot of like, what the what that was that was Robert Pattinson. Which one was Robert Pattinson? That, that <laughs> gray heron was Robert Pattinson. No, it wasn't. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. God, it was. Like there was a lot of that chatter. And that was yeah, yeah that was a wonderful performance how amazing um, how amazing man yeah i could like because of its connective tissue with murakami i could go in uh and talk about this movie forever but i'm trying to think of like other major things of that, that maybe is like a very miyazaki thing that because people are describing this and understandably since this is one of his quote-unquote last films again that this is like another retrospective that this is like him looking back at his own career uh and and deciding or and like you know just talking about it kind of like an irishman or something like that and i'm gonna be quite frank i kind of don't see it as that um this this kind of just this doesn't feel like it's as reflexive on his own work other than like just him kind of getting back to basics or back to like the root of what i guess he is like playing the hits a little bit but he's also really innovating in what a Miyazaki film can be. I don't know. I just have a hard time seeing this as a retrospective. Yeah. Uh, other than just, you know, he's been 
he's been forthright that it's autobiographical in a way. Um, and so, of course, if he's basing his main character off of himself and he's had this illustrious decades-long career just churning out amazing films at a you know pretty pretty healthy clip for a while there in the 80s and 90s um yeah it's gonna have like shades of his himself all over it both as an artist and a person i mean that's true though of like anyone making movies right now like yeah you're gonna look at the irishman and be like there's a lot of scorsese shit in it like (laughs) oh okay like what else is gonna be in it like yeah it's a scorsese movie it's it's gonna have scorsese things it's a a moot point like like why is that even a a thing and like i you know i could definitely see a lot of shades of his previous movies but it's not unique to miyazaki um but i again i do think this movie is a lot more stripped down and a lot more sincere in uh uh in scope compared to a lot of his old older stuff and Mm -hmm. um yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I disagree where it's like, yeah, I see a ton of his old movies in there, but like, who cares? Yeah, it's like, yeah, I never understood that. Uh, once again, Murakami gets charged with this too, where um, as he gets deeper into his uh, bibliography, there we go, um, similar to Miyazaki's filmography, oh, he just like makes the same thing over and over and over. It's like, well, yeah, he's one guy, like. He has like one perspective because he comes from, he only has one set of eyes that he's seeing the world from. So of course it's going to have striving connective tissue. And like, it's the same thing as like, no one gets mad when uh, a musical artist just keeps playing music. That sounds like the same genre that they've been doing their entire career. In fact, people get mad when they switch it up. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Either way, this movie rocks. <laughs> yeah, and rock, yeah, like what you're saying with the uh, the the score. There it is. Um, it, yeah, it's definitely. I don't know if I would put it above Spirited Away, but I certainly uh, I think it's going to be one one of the more memorable ones to to come out, and that people will be gleaning onto. We'll, we'll see a lo-fi chill remix of this within weeks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was vibing with the music so hard watching the movie, <laughs> and I really appreciate it the score for this in a similar way that I appreciated the score for Pinocchio last year. Mm. Uh, And uh, actually a lot of Alexandre Desplat scores like the shape of water is another one that comes to mind where there's, there's still hinging on melody. Like it's still like, it doesn't, I mean, last year when um, all quiet on the Western front, won best original score when that whole score is basically like these like Hans Zimmer, like farts, Big honks, big honks the whole time. Just a bunch of, <laughs> um, I it just blew my fucking mind that it won best original score over like Babylon and Pinocchio. Um, this movie, you know, very much still is like very. It's melodic. The score is not. Um, it's not just underscoring the movie. It's not just like enhancing the feelings of the movie. It's it's got its own voice. And uh, the it and the movie are, are to, like the images and the music balance together, even though they're both, you know, um, very complete pieces of art separately. Oh, by right? themselves, yeah. By themselves, yeah. And I think that's that art has been lost in Hollywood filmmaking, certainly, mm. where a lot of just tones are underscoring a movie rather than melody. And I really every time I see a movie where the score features a lot of melody, I'm very much drawn to it. 
and that's yeah. what I, I feel like uh i haven't seen it yet i think it's coming out this week i feel like poor things kind of seems like they're gonna have that relationship too i hope so yeah i mean i'm just i'm i'm really excited to see wonka tomorrow night yeah, as it yeah, is yeah. it's just it's straight up it's a musical and it's going to be full of since it's a prequel to an existing movie musical it's going to be full of those recurring themes as well mm-hmm. and um i it's it's a it's an art that I've missed greatly. And so I was very much enjoying listening to the boy and the heron the whole time. Oh, and that reminds me of a point I, I meant to bring up um, something about like, you know, the, this alternate world being an un it's a parallel world, but it's also sort of an underworld. Like you get a very like river sticks feeling mm-hmm. at certain points yep. and particularly, and I think this sort of quote unquote unlocked the film for me was when uh, the boy walks up to um, that big golden gate. And it says something along the lines of like, those who learn my secrets cannot continue to survive. And, you know, he opens up, he goes in, he almost gets killed by all the the pelicans and stuff and he gets pulled out. But I think that's like, it, it reads as a riddle. And I was like, kind of trying to think, I was like, okay, what's the riddle about? And then the moment that uh, Florence Pugh's character says, oh, you went into the graveyard. It's like, oh, it's death. It's like, this is, this is the underworld. Like if you learn, if you know what's on the other side of life, so if you know what death actually is, you're dead. Like you can't, you don't get to know. <laughs> you can't like live with that knowledge. It's impossible. And so this whole, the whole metaphor of this like alternate world being a sort of Hades or an underworld or a purgatory of some sort, once again, reminding me of Murakami's newest novel, Killing Commendatore. Um, <laughs> but it's, and, and like that is like this giant environment, like the environment has this giant metaphor for him dealing with the death of his mother, for him feeling like he probably could have saved her. Um, you know, even the heron like luring him in there with like, oh, you didn't see your mother's dead body, did you? Like, come over here and you might get a look at it. Like, this is all screaming that this alternate like holding pattern world that he lives there that he explores is sort of like a living death that everyone's in. Uh, did you pick up on that as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can definitely see that. The only thing that sort of contradicts that um, is it doesn't seem to be like a finite endpoint. It's a cycle, right? Like maybe like you you go to that that alternate world, you know, that's sort of more spiritual realm when you die. But also we see like souls kind of rising back up mm-hmm. to be reborn. Yeah, it's like this holding um, pattern for like disembodied spirits, whether they're about to be made or are done being made. Yeah, I mean, that conjures up two recent Pixar movies, actually, Coco, <laughs> which owes a huge debt to Miyazaki, uh, but also this movie Soul that deals yeah, with the yeah, exact yeah. same concept, mm-hmm. which I'm I'm sure it's uh, it's not like a chicken or egg situation. It's that uh, all the artists at Pixar are probably just all obsessed with Miyazaki. Um <laughs> But yeah, uh, I could definitely see that. I don't know if I could get any deeper than you just did, but I agree. Yeah, and I don't think, like what you're saying, I don't think it's literally like, oh, he's in purgatory or, oh, he's in the spirit world or the underworld. Like it's it's much, it's a little more abstract than that, which I think yep. the movie is usually operating on that sort of level anyways. And I, I think it goes to like hit on the themes of like, okay, so you know, the riddle that sits on top of the graveyard that like, oh, if you know, if you learn the truth of this matter, you can no longer live. So, you know, if you die and see what's on the other side of life, like you're not alive anymore, so you can no longer live. But there's also like this living death that you can live with when all you do is mourn those who have passed, um, that 
whether they have literally died or like you just no longer have that relationship with that person anymore or you know even say like your hometown that you no longer live in it's just like if you're just stuck living and focusing on the things that you've lost or the things that what you will lose like you're sort of a walking corpse um which in a sense you can see that that's like one of the big things that the boy learned to orient himself to not get over uh necessarily because you know he has not conquered death obviously but to learn for lack of a better word kind of to forget like it's okay to yep. leave the dead buried and continue living your life especially uh, if you're a kid and you need to yeah. be a kid longer than than being like he's like, like 10 or 11 or something probably yeah yeah give or take yeah um he still has so much time that he needs to just be a kid and be loved and taken care of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. worry about you know the dead yeah, which I mean, haven't you, uh, even if it's not something as explicit as just the dead or like your dead loved ones or something like there are so many people that I know in my own personal life that they're just stuck living in some previous thing in their life or yeah. um, they're they're always under the shadow of everything they have. They're worried about losing it, whether it's a person or a status or a job or something like that. So they can know they can never enjoy what they currently have because they're so focused on the finitude of it. Right. Right. Well, Dan, what else do you recommend besides every Murakami novel? Yeah, I was like, the easy one would just to say read, read, read Kafka on the Shore, IQ 84, Wind Up Bird Chronicle, and Killing Commendatory, all just back to back to back to back as quickly as you can. I think that's like, you know, it's that's like 3,500 pages worth of books. It can't take too long. Um, but film wise, and then, you know, we're, we're still going to hammer on this theme. Um, watch drive my car that's also a good one for this or um actually this great cartoon or animated feature that i saw not too long ago that is directly a murakami adaptation is a uh, blind willow sleeping woman is also another great one where it's, it's actually kind of interesting i forget if i've talked to you about this um that it's it's based off a short story collection actually the short story collection i'm currently reading and it wraps in about eh, three or four of them all together into one narrative and then it and, and then it includes a couple of his other bigger novels too and it kind of plays on the joke that people say about Murakami novels that like it features the same protagonist every single time um so it's like well let's just take that literally let's just make the same protagonist go through four different Murakami stories mm, um fun. but it I think it encapsulates like by doing that, it shows what like Murakami's big concerns are, what he wants to explore, what like kind of wisdoms can be gleaned from uh, just his perspective and and things, and also just the weirdo shit that he likes to do. Like, there's a big old talking frog that battles a <laughs> worm under underneath Tokyo so that the worm doesn't uh, create an earthquake and destroy the entire city because the worm is too angry from all the malice lately. Like that's a major plot point. <laughs> uh, is that one of the stories that um, was included in that manga yes. collection? Yes, that, that is uh, that you so nicely gave to me for my birthday, which I read almost immediately. Uh, oh, that's great. That is in there. Um, yeah. So I would recommend it's on canopy right now. I believe uh, blind willow sleeping woman. Uh, give it a whirl. Also, it, which I appreciate too, that this one doesn't shy away from the fact that Murakami is so fucking weird when yeah. he writes about women and sexuality. I don't know what that's about, but they didn't omit it, and I appreciate that. Yeah, that needs to be discussed. I've always heard that about him. I think uh, 
we'll be publishing an episode uh, just next Monday where you and Kate discuss that very thing. I'm pretty sure that was while oh, we yeah, were recording. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for me, uh, earlier on, I had this like aha moment where we were talking about a specific thing. And then I was like, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to recommend. And now I don't remember what that was or what we were talking about. Oh, no. Um, but there's another movie that I absolutely adore that you know, was fairly well liked when it came out, but was kind of deeper under the radar than I thought it was going to be after I saw it. And it's a, it is another movie that's sort of a, a fantasy coming of age drama about a young boy with a dead or dying mother who really starts to understand complex human complexity and, and less of a black and white world um, by way of interacting with the fantastical. Uh, and it's called a monster calls. Oh, I don't know that one. Um, it's based on a, like a story, a children's storybook um, from years past, uh, directed by J.A. Bayona, who directed, gosh, a couple horror films and uh, most recently one of the Jurassic Worlds. He directed The Orphanage, was like his kind of breakthrough horror film. And then he directed The Impossible um, about about the tsunami. I think that also has uh, Tom Holland in it as a little boy. And uh, yeah, so A Monster Calls very, very much deals with similar themes and it's gorgeous. And it's so sad. And the the fantasy elements very much remind me of what Guillermo del Toro does with similar stories, um, where it's melding pure fantasy with pure reality hmm. and kind of mixing them, uh, just like the boy in the heron does. And it's so good. And uh, it didn't get nearly as much love as I thought it was going to, because I think it has a lot of mass appeal, but it's also very, very sad. Um, and Liam Neeson is awesome as the main monster. Like he's basically like a giant tree monster mm-hmm. who, you know, starts to nurture this little boy whose mother is dying. Um, but also there's like a sinister element to it. And uh, it's very good. Very, very good. I'm... Good for fans of this movie as well as um, something like Pan's Labyrinth. I was also thinking, do you think this would be a companion to like where the wild things are? The very similar. Very similar. Okay, cool, yep. cool, cool. I like that one too. Yeah. It's on, oh, it's on Netflix. So I can give it a whirl. Yeah. Yeah. Strongly encourage you to do so. Sweet. Cool. Well, that just about does it for this bonus episode of Concessions. I'm Jared. I'm Dan. And if a bird shits on both your shoulders and your chest and your legs and the top of your head, it's a sign of good luck. <laughs>